Once upon a time, a special coffee brand was born, Enchant Coffee. They believe that a good brew should be part of every good story. Enchant Coffee is a gourmet, fairy tale themed coffee company that offers flavors like Mad Tea Party, Potion of the Sea Witch, The Sleeping Curse, and The Enchanted Bean. Each is a unique blend of 100% Arabica coffee. Sign up for the newsletter at EnchantCoffee.com to receive 10% off your first order. EnchantCoffee.com. Add some magic to your morning. Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Over the course of history, we've had a regrettably large number of examples of ways in which women have been sidelined and victimised in society. From witchcraft accusations to voting rights, equal pay and conditions, and so much more. Yes, things are better now than they used to be. And no, they're not right or equal. There is still so much more to do. It should come as no real surprise, therefore, to realise that this doesn't stop with the living, either. There have been very few serious studies of ghosts in folklore, which have focused primarily on female ghosts. There have been great individual studies of singular ghosts, such as La Llorona, or single classes of ghosts, like Grey Ladies. But a more general anthology study? Not so much. So it's great to have the opportunity to be able to redress the balance on this. Recently, a new paperback edition of the book Haunted History of Invisible Women came out from Kensington Citadel Press. We had the opportunity a while ago to chat with the authors of this title, but our backlog of work meant that the interview had not yet been released into the world. So this seemed like a great time to bring it forward. The authors, Liana Renee Heber and Andrea Jaynes, examine many of the famous cases of female hauntings in America, such as Lizzie Borden and Sarah Winchester, important historical figures, such as Bridget Bishop, the first person to be executed during the Salem Witch Panic, through to some lesser-known spirits. The study shines a vital light on the important role that the stories of these female ghosts play in our collective consciousness and in the American culture whether their stories are told through campfire tales, urban legends, or eyewitness testimony. Actress, playwright and author Liana René is the award-winning best-selling writer of gothic Victorian fantasy novels for adults and teens. Her novels have garnered numerous regional genre awards, including four prisms, and have been selected as Indie Next and National Book Club Picks. She lives in New York City, where she's a licensed ghost tour guide, and has been featured in film and television shows such as Broadwalk Empire. Andrea is the founder and owner of Burroughs of the Dead, New York City's premier ghost tour company, which has been featured on NPR.org, The New York Times, Jezebel, Today, The Huffington Post, Travel Channel, and many more. Andrea is also the author of the young adult novel Glamour, and several short horror stories, and a fiction horror novel, Burroughs of the Dead, the inspiration for her company name. 
The pair met with literary correspondent Hilary Wilson, who started by asking them how they became interested in the topic. Who wants to start? <laughs> Should we go alphabetical? Um, um, either way, either way. It's it's always hard because we're but we. So this is Liana talking. Um, we 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 like to sort of say we were born we were born spooky, and that's definitely the case for both of us. Um, and whether it was in, in my case, actual paranormal phenomena that were happening to me at things that were happening as a child that kind of opened the door and my ongoing fascination. Um, and then, or, or Andrea's um, just prime interest in it. So do you want to talk a little bit more about yeah, your favorite books um, growing up? My interests are so much more mediated because I don't really have a lot of very significant direct paranormal experience in my life as much as I would love to. But, you know, my experiences stemmed a lot from books I read as a child and museums I visited. And um, so I've just always been very fascinated with the content. I would definitely trip, you know, traipse down to my basement and, and try and find ghosts and search with a flashlight and, you know, nothing ever happened. So, but it was just this very innate, very lifelong interest that, that stemmed from childhood and, uh, um, just the idea of wanting to write ghost stories was always a dominant feature of my life. And I think doing the ghost tours really was just this kind of entry point into, you know, a career that, you know, people would actually pay me to tell them ghost stories. And, and so one thing sort of just spiraled and led to another. Um, and I had a good fortune to meet Leanna through my ghost tours. And that was like this sort of wonderful meeting of the minds. Yeah, we were both um, asked by um, another organizer to come and read ghost stories at an event in New York. And I was aware of Andrea's company. I thought it was brilliant. And I thought it was just, you know, because it had gotten a lot of wonderful press. And so I thought, oh, this has got to be this wonderful machine of like this whole big company. Um, I would love to work for this company because that was when I moved to New York. I knew I wanted to write books set in New York. So I thought, well, the best thing to do as a background uh, as training and as a side job, as both a performer and writer, because of course you need a side job, is um, <laughs> is to be a tour guide. And that, because I wanted to know New York history. So the more I thought, well, everything I learn as a tour guide is going to feed directly into my fiction and my interest in nonfiction. So, um, <clears throat> so I got my tour guide's license a year into being in New York. And, uh, and so I approached Andrea after our reading of our ghost stories. And I said, you know, talked about really liking her company and her whole mission, being very history focused, not interested in jump scares, nothing like nothing felt fabricated, everything felt very organic and very respectful. That's, you know, that's really the, the key point of our entry into all of these things and our, our, our mutual uh, respect for the dead, regardless of our, you know, levels of skepticism or paranormal experiences or beliefs, respect for the dead is tantamount, respect for real history and respect for the dead. So I said, you know, I've got a tour guide license if you need anybody. And <laughs> evidently I was her first hire. I had no idea that it was literally a one woman <laughs> show. So um, because she made it look very, you know, um, elaborate and and very um, like a big operation. So uh, I was I was very impressed with how um, she, you know, she had become New York's top ghost tour company. I thought that was pretty great. So, you know, we <clears throat> we were working under that uh, under the auspices of 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 love of history and respect for the dead. And that really guides 
everything um, because we were, you know, both of us lifelong ghost storytellers one way or another. One of my earliest memories is of telling a, making up a ghost story to my Girl Scout troop <laughs> and absolutely terrifying them and fe- feeling a great amount of power in that. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is. Um, and there's also a sort of powerlessness when you enter the field of being a ghost tour guide. It's this frustration, you're banging your head against the wall because there seems to be this kind of loophole when it comes to history. If you frame a narrative as a ghost story, you get away with a lot lot of very loose and shoddy history and it would really frustrate me to see some of the things that people would say on tours that were so easy to fact check and they were like people say that this was once a brothel but nobody really knows there's literally no way to find out I'm like well I mean there is okay so you know this kind of really grounding the stories in history um I think that is what led to the sort of unique approach to this book. You know, the entertainment factor of the ghost story gets very troublesome when you couch it in a real person's life or a potentially real person's life. Um, And there is always an element of mystery. There is an element of unsolvability to any ghost story, to any history, to anything. But um, yeah, it was just this kind of desire to see how, how closely can we align the track of the ghost story with the track of objective such as you can call it that objective reality um and that was sort of i think part of the the hook that made this book unique was that that attempt to really get to the heart of not just what really happened but also why these stories um were the ones that people would choose to tell over and over and over again Andrea had had just started a, a a women's you know a women focused ghost tour and it was really it was very very popular. So when I was approached by an editor to write a book of ghost stories, um, I very quickly I literally there was not a single second in my mind. The first thing I said was, "Well, I I want to bring Andrea into this <laughs> because I don't want to do this without her. She's kind of been my my team ghost, uh, you know, my Scooby Gang counterpart." Um, and uh, and and the the response to what was evidently the first feminist ghost tour uh, of New York um, had been really, really interesting. And that really kind of helped frame also, again, a- along the lines of our mutual interests about lifting up these very, very complex and often completely um, uh, ch- changed for someone's agenda stories. And it's funny because the whole reason why I did a woman's ghost tour was honestly because there was a stretch of mild weather and I thought I can start doing ghost tours earlier than usual this year. I would usually start with my Titanic tours in April and March was so mild and I was like, let's do something for Women's History Month, right? Um, And it just, I, I started to look at the existing ghost tours that we were offering and I was like, what happens if I just pull out only the female centered narratives and see what I'm left with? And I was like, I'm actually left with a tour that's not only as strong as the original, but maybe even stronger. And, um, Looking back, it's kind of ridiculous that I did this when I had a two-year-old at home, and I have no idea why I took on all this extra work, but I did. And um, it's 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 kind of like Frankenstein in reverse. Instead of being caused by a stretch of bad weather, it was caused by a stretch of mild weather. So anyway, it was just um, <laughs> I thought it was really unique. And the more I looked, I was like, wow, no one else is doing this. So let's let's go for it. And uh, apparently, our editors felt the same way. So because it wasn't our initial pitch, our initial pitch was just straight up New York City ghost stories, right? Mm-hmm, exactly. But we but we 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 were feeling like something was missing. And so when it was when the uh, 
when the editorial feedback was like, what if we just lean into some of these other things that are already successful in, you know, my fiction has always been very women focused and, you know, your, the, the tours, the response to this was something that was very prescient. And it was also very like much, you know, you'd, you'd had lots of really good press that made it, it easier to pitch this to the marketing department too. <laughs> so and the more I thought about it, the more natural it was because I had so many female participants on my ghost tours, taking my ghost tours for every guy on the tour, there was like nine women. And I'd had like, you know, interviewers from various media outlets approach me, you know, I'm writing an article on why women are fascinated by ghosts. I ended up hiring a lot of um, female identifying tour guides, like a lot of our tour guides are female non-binary. We actually don't currently have any like guy tour guides at the moment. But um, just because it's just a matter of who applies, like just something about this the way we presented our tours. And I, I I don't know if I'm flattering myself or drinking my own Kool-Aid here, but I think the way we present our tours with being very thoughtful and almost cautious, like let's explore this topic gently, was um, something about it appealed to like a certain kind of very thoughtful person who cared deeply about ghosts. And so it was just like, the more we started to think about, like Leanna said, her fiction had a lot of female characters and was very, um, you know, I hate to call it women's fiction. I hate that. But you know what I mean? Like there's this, this tradition, this long tradition, the more we thought about it, we're like women and ghosts, um, writers of ghost stories, traditionally women. I've already name checked Mary Shelley once. So let's talk about it again. Like the, the female ghost story author and, and speculative fiction author that made sense. The um, confluence of the women's movement in America in the 19th century with spiritualism and the suffragettes all kind of you know, there's that wonderful book by Anne Browdy, Radical Spirits. So I was like, wait a minute, um, Shirley Jackson, we were just talking about the haunting of a hill house before this. I was like, there's some sort of weird alignment. Um, and then if you talk about these great Western binaries, you know, male, female, rational, irrational, night, day, you know, they're bullshit, but there's also like that existing structure, right? So it just, it really flowed and it really made sense. And the more we kind of got up steam, the more exciting it was to sort of explore those connections. Uh, It reminded me a lot of um, Colin Dickey's book on the history of ghosts. Oh, don't think I didn't call this book Ghostland for Girls in my head. I mean, because I did. (laughs) We, we, we name check Colin Dickey quite a bit. Um, You, you kind of can't not like, so Ghostland is, is very much uh, it's our, um, our editors were like, "Mm, yeah, you might need to mention it a couple times less actually. But it is strong in our bibliography. And that's a wonderful thing because it goes into why these ghosts are as pertinent as they are and how they relate to the history. And so also, well, it's sorry. fascinating. Um, sorry to interrupt, but yeah, also okay. the Taya Miles book, Tales from the Haunted Self, was the first book that I ever picked up that was a serious scholarly consideration of the intersection between ghost stories, gender, class, and race. And I was like, oh, this woman's a genius. And so like the, I would say Tanya Miles and Colin Dickey were these two like very foundational books that I had in mind, writing my chapters almost like in response to the the stuff they had already put out there. And I was like, how can we further this conversation? So I have to ask, um, although you've already covered it to a certain extent, but why female ghosts? And why do you think that that has isn't a topic that's actually been explored very much before. I honestly just think it's, it's, there's a lot, there's a great deal of, of erasure of women's narratives um, mm-hmm. across uh, history. 
So ghost lore just factors into that. You 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 find so many amalgams of female uh, ghosts, the 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 gray ladies, the white ladies, and they're not a name, they're just a concept. And you know, finding women's names and their actual names and their actual histories as we as we cover in the book, um, sometimes that's very, very difficult to pin down because history has been so much subsumed by you become Mrs. So-and-so, uh, and you take on the entirety of the husband's name. And, and so it's just part of that is we love the concept of the fact that this, these women are still persisting. They're still haunting. So they're still making their presence known. And in some ways they're louder now and they're more their own people in ghost lore than they were able to be in life. But there's just such a rich, um, uh, space for discussion. And that's what we want. We want our book to be a series of prompts for people to think about these intersections. We're not trying to tell anyone what to believe. And we're not trying to be out here to be militant about anything sociologically. We're just presenting these actual facts. And in some cases, rehabilitating some uh, uh, some sort of misnomers. Um, I'm, I'm trying to make sure Sarah Winchester uh, d- d- goes into history as not a mad woman, but in fact, a very kind and generous and quirky lady who loved architecture. Um, you know, there's, there is a certain amount of like trying to get to the real truth of it because they have been so maligned. Not that we rehabilitate the actual monsters. There are, women can be monstrous just as equally as anyone else. Um, and we don't rehabilitate the actual monsters, um, but we are interested in their real stories. Yeah, and sort of the metaphorical qualities of invisibility in this context were like really too delicious to resist, you know, um, and and just that that sense of societal invisibility um, coupled with like all those pre-existing historic factors that seemed to really align women and ghosts. It was just like, I don't know, it was this really perfect sort of union. Um, and that's why we were very adamant about using either invisibility or invisible in the title of the book, because take, for example, invisible labor, you know, it is most commonly performed by women. Um, the sense of invisibility Leanne already alluded to with um, maiden names and name changes, name changes and being subsumed into another person's identity existing at the margins of history, even like as a new mom wandering up and down the halls of my apartment at three in the morning, feeling spectral, feeling invisible, feeling out of my mind with exhaustion. Like you sort of, then all those Gothic tropes, the mad woman in the attic. Um, It was so, it was really just kind of perfect. I I thought. I think I have to agree. (laughs) Because it's my baby. (laughs) I 100% have to agree. I thought it was an extremely pertinent metaphor there. And I also thought that it tied in really nicely. Um, the book begins with a section about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. And I thought that that was just as perfect an intro as you could potentially have to this. Um, if you guys might want to tell that story a little bit. Well, you have to start yeah, with real horrors, I think. Um, that, that was for us the most important thing. It's like we're not we're not here to scare you any more than history should already scare you. Mm -hmm. And if you're, if you're not aware of these things, it's, it's to us as New York city tour guides, it's one of the most palpable visceral harrowing stories that we tell. And so we wanted to get right to the heart of the matter of how horrific that fire was. Um, Just the general overview It was March 25th, 1911. And towards the end of the work day, a fire broke out on the uh, top floors of the, um, 
that night at that at that time known as the Ash Building, unfortunately named um, A S C C H. I was yeah. like, it's not actual A S H. It's there's a C <laughs> in there. The Ash Building um, and uh, the 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 crammed workplace environment. Um, the fact that workers were locked in to keep them focused on their work and to keep union organizers out, the fact that none of the fire escapes were maintained, the fact that that there were everything that could have gone wrong in a safety uh, standpoint um, did go wrong. And so the the top three floors of this building, it has a stone exterior, but the interior was all wood. The staircases between the floors were wooden. And everything went up in about five minutes, like by, but within five minutes, just about everything was in flames and there were very limited exits. Um, and as you can imagine, and as the chapter goes into true horror stories unfolded and, uh, you know, thousands of New Yorkers were gathering and, and watching helplessly as uh, mostly women, it was 146 that died and 123 of them were women. And that's a, just a staggering number when you think of, of just a few top floors of a, of a one block building. And it's a lot of them had to jump out the windows and, and onto the streets and the, the fire nets were not tested with the weight of a body um, from the eighth, ninth or 10th floor. And the fire ladders, uh, the firemen, the fire chief had not been given enough budget to create bigger ladders. They only went to the sixth floor. So you could see help, but it was two floors away. Um, it's just the tragedy of it is just so horrific. And the spectral imprint then there is absolutely devastating. And even if there is no actual ghost story about it, even if we're just haunted by it, well, we should be haunted by it. And there are, of course, reports of, of various different um, sensory hauntings that happen in the place, but it is it, it needs to be seared onto our American imagination about why we need to fight for labor laws because they, they technically broke no laws in locking people in and, and ignoring all these safety things, later labor law was passed after this because of the outrage, but it shouldn't take that. Well, there's a beautiful also- photo of the roses outside on the sidewalk mm-hmm. as well um, within the book. Yes. Thank you. I took that because I was so staggered. Like I actually gave a tour the night of um, when I took that picture, I had given a tour and it was the anniversary of the fire. And I wept talking about it and my audience wept talking about it. And then I took that photo and then I, so I, I think, I think it just carries that photo almost has a spectral weight to it because it was taken on the anniversary and I'd just been, I just finished weeping. One of my favorite things about New York is that they don't forget and they have those roses every year and they have the chalk project every year where they mark on the sidewalks in front of the addresses of people who died in the fire, where they lived and how old they were. Um, And I love that our city still does that. But I thought that chapter was a good way to start the book because it sets the tone right away. You know, it's like, this is how we're going to couch our story in history. This is how we're going to couch our story in, you know, the social history specifically of women. We're going to talk about labor. We're going to discuss the concept of hauntings in in terms that are, you know, we're going to try and wrap our heads around what hauntings really mean and how we, you know, interact with the dead. And there's also a little bit of self-reflexive, you know, what does it mean to be a tour guide working in this context? Like, let's let's talk about our relationship to this industry. And then the metaphor of like, we're in an industry, so many um, gig workers and part-time workers and unprotected workers are in this current industry. And so it kind of brings it all into the present day. 
and wraps it up. So it's like, this is how our approach is going to be throughout the book. So if you read that chapter and you don't like that chapter, then you don't, you don't have to read the rest of the book. So it's nice. It's like, you can bounce after that. Cause that's kind of how we're going to go down for pretty much the next 300 pages. So I'm glad you appreciated that. We, we started with that. Yeah. I thought it was harrowing and I thought that it was also just a really unique perspective because whether or not there are ghosts is not as interesting mm-hmm. as what the thought of there being ghosts can tell us mm-hmm. about ourselves. Exactly. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Exactly that. There was um, a section much later in the book that was similarly interesting to me because it also played with that sort of a notion. And that was the section on Lizzie Borden, of all people. <laughs> mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, the question of whether or not she did it um is not entirely as interesting as the idea of how people relate to the story and what the stories become to us for sure yeah and there's something again her story is so rich like the the location of that story all the mill girls in that textile town like the the number of female spectators at her trial the way that meshes with our current like discussion about true crime and how women love it and how it's also problematic and um her very spectral presence in her own house she kind of like rattles around the house idle you know she has no outlet for any of her energies and like there's even a thing in the trial transcript where one of the lawyers was like trying to account for her whereabouts during the day and and then the rebuttal to that was like, well, do you know where your wives are in your house at all hours of the day? Like that kind of um, enclosure in that space. I mean, um, it's the richness of that story is endless. It's so good and so strange. I mean, is the house haunted? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but yeah. It's certainly yes. haunted by people's thoughts yep. of it. It's like it's, it's mm-hmm. it did become a national obsession. But And yet, one of the things I found so fascinating is that no, we all think we know what happened. And then I'm reading Andrea's chapter because I knew right away, like we had our pet interests. It's like, there was no doubt that I was going to write about Sarah Winchester and Andrea was going to write about Lizzie <laughs> Gordon. Like this was like, we knew, cause we also knew we were going to be required to have a few like tent pole chapters that were famous stories. So we knew that some of that was, you know, we wanted to lift up unknown stories, but we knew we had to have some, some stuff that was going to go literally on the first few lines of the back cover copy. <laughs> so I was really grateful that Andrea wanted to take on Lizzie Borden because I just didn't know what to say. And I just was so fascinated by her chapter. I think it's one of the most brilliant chapters in the book. And it's um, mainly because exactly like what you said, Hillary, is that it's not, it's not about whether she did it or not. It's, it's all of these other things that are so much more interesting and that's why we think we know what happened, but we actually don't know what happened at all. Um, and it just, the the additional, the more information that you find out, the more you don't know. And that to me, a lot of people hate that, but I think that's fascinating. I mean, there's a reason why my introduction section of, of the book, we each wrote our own introduction section. My introduction section is titled Existential Questions. Because I I actually like that there's not an answer to that. So maybe there will be uh, in whatever. Um, uh, Andrea, is it an is it a sealed file? That's evidently there is a sealed file. I learned this from reading that really wonderful. Um, oh, I can't remember her name. The book is called The Trial of Lizzie Borden, and mm-hmm. like in the epilogue, she has a few throwaway lines where it's like, also by the way, there's a sealed file cabinet somewhere with like an envelope, and it has probably everything you want to know, but it can't be accessed. And I was like, well, that is tantalizing. And I love that. (laughs) So yeah, again, it's kind of like, um, 
I don't know. I I was talking about Raymond Chandler the other day and somebody had said that he said he wanted to write detective stories in such a way that you didn't really care who done it. And I was, I'm like, yeah, that's kind of it. You're like, so enjoying the story. It's almost immaterial. Um, of course you want to know. And that's what keeps you strong along, but it's like, it's so good. Even with that, like, who cares? That's why I don't care about spoilers. It's like about the process, um, not the result. And I'm with you hundred percent, Leanna. Like, I just love how every question leads to two more questions and it's the garden of forking paths. And, you know, I love it. Uh, there was um, a quote by Richard Haddam. Um, I think that it was actually in the Mothman prophecy movie. It was either that or when he was you know, commenting about it later that sometimes you just have to live with a mystery. Mm-hmm. You know, that there is no ultimate answer. And that view of the paranormal, I think, is a kind of delicious one to often take. Yeah, well, what is it? Mysteries cannot be solved, only contemplated. And also, Leanna, what's that great Rilke quote that you have in your introduction, Living the Mystery? It's about, like, you have to live and love the question. Yes. And and then someday you may live into the answer. But you have to li- to love and, and to, to learn to love the question. Um, it's a it's a whole paragraph that I that is my favorite thing that has like literally gotten me through life and it's the key to my artistic process um, and that it's from his letters to a young poet um, and it really is sort of my uh, uh, my my sort of guiding philosophy is is Rilke's approach to art which is that which is very <clears throat> process based not necessarily endpoint based but mm-hmm. and we have to that's, this was a difficult balance of wanting to create a satisfying experience for the reader knowing that a lot of people do actually want an answer so we've we cannot give that to you but we will try to give you a whole lot of information so that then you can possibly come away with your own thoughts about it or at least feel like the process of asking the question is in fact a satisfying one because we're we're not we're not interested in giving you an answer. We cannot. There is no science that can prove what we're talking about yet. Do I think that science and the afterlife is antithetical? No, I think that's probably just a science we don't understand yet. So, but at the same time, we, we're really careful not to, you know, to, to not to reveal too much about our leanings um, one way or another. Uh, obviously, you're going to know our opinions about things. Obviously, we have to have an opinion as a tour guide. You have to have a viewpoint. You have to have a viewpoint as a writer. But, you know, which one of us is more the skeptic and which one of us is more the believer? Um, people figure that out when they're talking to us, but we didn't necessarily want that directly in the text all the time. I do share some of my per- uh, paranormal experiences Andre does as well. We have, we both had weird things happen in the merchant's house to both of us, um, respectively, at different times, similar things that happened in terms of being, uh, feeling like we were touched, grabbed. Um, and the, you know, the intimacy of the paranormal, everyone's going to have a very different takeaway. Uh, the paranormal is just as, as individual as to how it may react and manifest or not to anyone as, as it, it is to anyone else. So that, that balance is, is so important in the book. It's definitely hard to strike, but I think we were just leading with our heart and our instinct and just, you know, hoping it would all shake out for the best. And that's what I really love about merging haunting and history together is that beautiful tension between the tangible and the intangible, this eternal mystery that cannot be solved here on the human plane with like a real, this is where she lived. This Mm is the banister she touched. Like that's, I love that, that balance between those two things or the tension between those two things. 
one of the stories that really you know, stuck with me to the point that I've been checking the town's website since I finished uh, reading the book was the idea of the town celebrating Sybil Phelps' birthday party, <laughs> you know, each year. I love that idea of the celebration of this strange local <laughs> person. That's so upstate New York, though, isn't it? Like, yeah. I just feel that this part of the country is just like, bring it on. We love this. I do love there's it. And so it's just work. got such a, yeah, there's such a, there's such a historical precedent for, you know, holding seances in the, uh, the burned over district of New York, you know, the, the set, the central swath of an upstate uh, all the way down. I sort of refer to it as the supernatural superhighway all the way down to Manhattan. Um, whatever. Uh, it's just this kind of like swath of ghost lore that just, you know, was the birthplace of the spiritualist movement and, and you, and the leading directly into Seneca falls and, and women's suffrage and all of these various things. There's all these interesting utopian communities that were cropping up along the East coast um, and into New York. So it's just, it is, I love that that has still persisted. And I, and that was a very fun, uh, she was a very fun find that Andrea was like, there's this lady. And I was like, yes, I love her. Please write about her. <laughs> and, and I do throw like a birthday party. <laughs> yeah, the finger likes too. Like there's certain places that just feel so magical when you're in them. And you're like looking around, you're like, am I crazy? Or is this place like completely magical? And the finger likes feels magical. Like, I don't know. And I think all places have their own different kind of magic and their own different kind of feeling. And I love that specificity and that that, that sense of like a location has its own kind of little soul and, and you can feel its personality. And I love, like, I, I really enjoyed researching other parts of the country and just like that, that very specific, wonderful sense that each location has its own supernatural feeling, an aura, a folklore, a history, like a sense of who it is. And, you know, it's such a cliche, like New York City is a character, but like every place is a character, you mm -hmm. know? I think that one of the best ways to find the character of a place itself is to go into the ghost stories. Yes. You know, to find the little things that have stuck with people. And that's one of the reasons that I definitely want to attend Sybil Phelps's birthday seance. Yes. Like, yeah, a ghost tour is the best way to get to know a history of a city and a, a one of those little local, those skinny little local books published by a micropress. It's like, these are the ghost stories of this town. I'm like, those are my favorite, favorite things in the whole world. I love them. And I, I have to say that, um, you know, I don't want to pass over this because this is such a passion project here. But the you know section on um, Sarah Winchester was every bit as interesting to me as the section on Lizzie Borden. And I was utterly shocked by how little I knew about the truth behind both of these people. <laughs> Thank you. Sarah is my, like, I don't know. I just, I don't know. I was aware of the Winchester Mystery House, you know, this 160 room sprawling, incomprehensible mansion out in San Jose, California. Um, built by Sarah Winchester, who was the heiress to the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. And she was a millionaire many, many times over in the 19th century dollars. So we're talking like, we're talking multi, multi, multi millionaire um, who gave away a great deal of her money, mostly through the course of her life to charity, a lot of it anonymously. Um, but the, her reasons for doing what she did were just so speculated upon. And so the concept that she had moved west from her home of, of New Haven, Connecticut, to escape the uh, the spirits of those killed by the Winchester rifle, 
um, and that she went west and just kept building to keep the spirits at bay. All of that was complete fabrication, but it's just such a national myth. And so um, Colin Dickey d- definitely explores that in his chapter about um, about the Winchester House. But um, one of the things that I wanted to add in my chapter about this was uh, was a warmth about Sarah herself, because that that to me, I I really, really, truly identified with this woman who was a little bit of an introvert. She was very quirky. She dressed all in black all the time. Um, she was in mourning. She had a lot of loss in her life, and she was a passionate uh, architect. Really, you know, she she the reason why the Winchester House looks the way it does and is the way it is is because she wanted to do two things. Her passion project was architecture. So she sketched a bunch of things on napkins and, you know, and, and, and whatever paper was around her at the time. And she sketched out ideas and she had enough money to make the manifest. So the house is her sketchbook. And that, that doesn't play in terms of ghost lore. They, people want some sort of spooky, strange, fraught reason for it. Um, but, and she had plenty of, of reasons to be fraught, but that's not why she was doing what she was doing. It was, she also loved employing people and giving people meaningful work. And she loved artisans. She loved craftsmen. And so she just employed tons of people um, to create a family. Uh, All of her family was lost. Her baby daughter died. Her husband died. She loved them more than anything. And she also had other, her sisters died. It just, she had a lot of loss. So she created a found family and she paid them twice what anybody else paid them. And she hired people of color and she hired a Japanese gardener at a time when racism against uh, Asian Americans was very, very high. And um, and she was looked at as an oddball for all of her choices. People couldn't fathom it. And because she didn't throw parties and she didn't let other rich people into her house, they um, basically slandered her and created a fiction around her. And I just find that very troubling and the Winchester house itself has to reckon with that, that, that duality of people come to the house because they expect a ghost story. So all of the guides have to do a very tricky balance of, well, the legend has persisted that this is what happened. Here is what really happened. And yet the legend has taken on a life of its own. And it is part of why the house can still stay open because it became an amusement park the year after she died. It literally became the Winchester Amusement Company the year after she died. And so if it hadn't, that building probably would not exist. It was deemed of no value. She didn't mention it in her will. It's a baffling thing to me. So again, another (laughs) thing of like, what are your choices, Sarah? I'm so interested in this. We'll never really know her reasoning for everything. There's very curious, quirky things about the house, which then does lend itself to a lot of speculation, but it's all this to say, all this to go back to what we were talking about in, in the crux of this book, we'll never truly know. All we can do is give you as much information as we know how. And I wanted to reflect the love of Sarah and the house that the guides and that the house historian has for that house. It's, it's a palpable love for that place. And that is, that creates its own spectral resonance is that that house is beloved nationally and locally by the people working there. And that was just a very beautiful thing to see. I also love the way you made such a heartfelt pilgrimage out to her house and to her grave and like that warmth that you approach her with and that very genuine love. Like, you know, anyone can learn a fact, but like it it just leaps off the page how much you really, truly care about this person. And as you were talking about her love of architecture, I started thinking, isn't it funny, guys, that like Sarah Winchester 
liked and explored and participated in this very male dominated world of architecture, which has got like, you've got to have the schooling and the imprimatur and like, it's got to be um, approved of by the academy. And she like went rogue and did it on her own with no formal training. And she was just like creating things for her own pleasure. And this sort of bafflement that greeted this project of hers like wait what this woman's doing architecture you know architecture for fun like it was it reminded me of when the spiritualists and the suffragists first started getting up on stages and talking and they would open their mouths and words would come out and men were like well it's got to be a ghost speaking through them because no woman could ever talk like that you know <laughs> it's like this ascribing of a supernatural force to a woman who's creative it's like see it's like me try as you might ghosts are gendered and then the the narratives and the, the legends and the lore this is highly gendered stuff um but yeah it's just it makes me laugh a little bit of course it's haunted a woman couldn't build a house unless she was possessed by spirits come on that and then the fact that she never remarried was oh you know, yeah th- that was the other thing of like so she so she also plays into the other stereotype of the the fear of a woman alone uh the mm-hmm. widow mm-hmm. in her widow's weeds um you know, wandering her house, um, you know, it just, it's, 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 it was looked at as unnatural when it was exactly how she wanted, she lived her life the way that she wanted to. And she was beloved by all around her who, who wasn't, who weren't trying to get something from her other than like, you know, her staff obviously wanted to stay employed, but, um, uh, but, you know, she took such care with them. And so that because she took such care with her staff, it's like, I just wanted to take care with her, as a as a writer just because she'd been so maligned and i i just was horrified on her behalf (laughs) and isn't it so interesting also to compare her to eliza jumel another woman so associated with her house and the way they treated their staff and how they retained their staff and they paid them well and they they took care of them and like respected them and it's just like a a woman who has been there in in that kind of situation as a subaltern in eliza's situation where she once was a member of the underclass to just then and be this really generous caring safe employer um i see that a lot in women's histories when i read them that like a lot of people will really be extremely kind to their staff because it's just this sort of like, I don't know, when I see Sarah and when I see Eliza, there's just so many parallels, whether it's their home or whether it's the way they treat people. And I don't know, in the way they're, that they're so misunderstood. It's just, they, they seem to be very connected in my mind that way. I think that's interesting. And I think that the very relatable fact that Sarah Winchester also just couldn't have visitors over while she was busy building her house and so didn't want visitors. <laughs> Every introvert <laughs> feels this in their soul. Yeah, it, it made her a lot more relatable to me. Just, <laughs> you know, that little, I just want to do my hobby. Me too. Like, yeah, yeah, really, really it was. I mean, because even though I'm a performer, um, I, I am an introvert and people mistake that about you know, uh, creatives and performers, they think that we're all extroverts and I'm really not. So, um, I felt really, yeah, I felt deeply connected to her. It's been very interesting to, the sort of, um, I don't know, these, these, these people who became kind of like our extended family as we were writing about them. And I did, yeah, I, I went to Sarah's grave in New Haven and prayed at her grave for her permission and her blessing about writing about her because, you know, so many people had taken her narrative and run with it. 
And so that's really going back to what the, the course of this book was like, as best as we know how, we want to try to present to you these people um, and their real histories. Now, again, uh, on you know, we're we're talking fondly about Sarah, but like we we do not rehabilitate the actual monsters. So like we're we're not you're not going to find us writing fondly about uh, Madame Lalaurie or um, yeah. <laughs> or 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 Mary Surratt or other other people who are legitimately uh, unredeemable. The Mary Surratt section was incredibly interesting to me. Um, the way that people reacted to her and did kind of rehabilitate her when the historical evidence is so plainly uh, suggesting that she was instrumental in the assassination of Lincoln. Yeah, it's that that same logic that like led people to put up confederate statues and stuff you know so this is kind of yeah. lost cause and it's romanticization and i i don't know and again there's that gendered aspect to it but you know i i found with the mary surratt chapter the photographs were so striking because you see her up on the gallows and she's the only woman and she's dressed in her black widow's weeds and um I owe a debt to the scholarship of Chris Woodyard, who wrote a lot about the ghosts of widows and the precarious situation that widows were in. And just like that imagery, um, widows representing, you know, um, financial stress and, mm -hmm. and the terror of being alone in um, a situation where you had like no material support. So again, not to sympathize with her or or give her a pass in any sense, but like just the the terror of the widow, the way that was like visually contained in the imagery of her dress and that she chose to wear that. And I think maybe that has something to do with with sealing the legend, you know, it's, it's the subconscious play that outfit has on people. Um, but yeah, it's just obviously like she's this reprehensible monster. And then all of a sudden she becomes completely uh, romanticized by the same you know, the same kind of person who's going to romanticize every other aspect of the Confederacy. So it's, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty nuts. Um, and it's pretty cut and dry. Like, yeah, she definitely, yeah. definitely did it. Um, I felt bad for her daughter. I felt really bad for her daughter, who apparently had like a crush unrequited on John Wilkes Booth. Ah, whatever. <laughs> oh, girl, I'm sorry. Uh, Way to go after the bad one. Yeah. Uh, gotta get some better taste there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention one of the lesser known stories that um, got mentioned here. We talked about a little bit before the interview began, um, which is the story of um, the author of Spindrift. Jan Bryant Bartell, she wrote a very well now better known because uh, ghost ghost fanatics have 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 sort of found her now. Um, in 1974, she published a memoir from a relatively small press um, that came out posthumously about her time living at 16 and 14 West 10th Street in Greenwich Village. Beautiful area, very, very high-end real estate these days, millions of dollars to get a, you know, multiple millions for any kind of townhouse. A lot of the original single-family homes have been since subdivided into apartments, but um, she wrote about her time living in these very haunted spaces, and um, it, there's a great deal of ghost lore written about 14 West 10th Street. Uh, Mark Twain lived there for a year, uh, moved out saying that he couldn't keep up with the, where his wife couldn't keep up with the housework. Admittedly, before it was subdivided, that would have been a lot uh, without a full staff, and Twain's income was up and down. But it's also thought there's maybe a darker reason. Um, there have been ghost stories about that 
building going back to like the 1930s. And it was built in the um, mid 19th century, but, um, and Jan's living there in the, in the sixties and early seventies. And um, she is sort of a consummate unreliable narrator in a way, because she's fanciful about some things when she's writing about her time there, but she is describing very inexplicable experiences. And she's, the way that when she goes into a flourish, she's doing it about mundane things, um, about real world things. When she's talking about the spectral, she's actually quite specific um, in that she doesn't actually know what's happening, but she's describing the things that she's seen and felt um, and smelled uh, an, a, a noxious odor of death at one moment and then a violet perfume in the next. The rustling of taffeta, very specific uh, fabric when no one is in the room, a black miasma, a cloud that is a blackness that is going from one wall into the next. Um, uh, her dogs constantly freaking out, uh, their health being increasingly fragile, her health being increasingly fragile, crashing noises, loud noises when nothing is disturbed, um, a, a, a gray cat passing by, brushing against a leg. She doesn't have a cat. Um, there all of these things, you know, she, she hired Hans Holzer, the famed medium, uh, the famed ghost seeker, who's written tons of books about uh, around various experiences around the country. And he would bring in uh, generally female mediums uh, and sort of host a seance. And uh, Holzer is a fascinating character, but definitely plays fast and loose with history all the time. So uh, <laughs> definitely read Hans Holzer if you're interested, but do not look to him to uh, for, for an accurate um, historical picture. And, uh, and his mediums picked up on a bunch of different things and, and all of the things that I've described, but then didn't, didn't describe in their accounting uh, in a book he published called Ghosts I've Met of one of the most you know, palpable details of this gray cat, this ghostly gray cat. And she just had a distaste about how he wrote about it. So that was the prompt for her writing about her own experiences in the house. And she was living on the top floor of this apartment and then begins to kind of chronicle the ill and the dying at this address over the course of, you know, uh, a, a number of years, but still with only a few apartments really respectively, oh, about 24 people died either by an attack or by alcoholism or by suicide or by cancer or by heart attacks, all of these things. It's like the, the statistics of that are just an unreasonable number out of a small address. And she herself is feeling like she needs to leave. Um, the superintendent uh, feels that the building is cursed. He hears these walking footsteps and he doesn't want to be next. If he's next, he doesn't want to be down there waiting for it, as he says in the book. And, and um, it's this harrowing thing that she finally gets out from, but then she dies of a heart attack in New Rochelle. <laughs> and we know this looking at the jacket cover, uh, the jacket, the copy, the cover copy of Spindrift. We're aware that this is published posthumously. Um, a year after, you know, uh, her, she, it, it was an almost direct follow-on. She had finished this book, which she described as a personal exorcism. Uh, the energy of that house was just absolutely oppressive. Um, and it didn't, it, it weakened her heart, evidently. And she, she died of a, of, of a paralysis of heart, uh, to use the old, olden term. And, uh, and then six years later, uh, the Steinbergs moved in and uh, Joel Steinberg um, killed his daughter in that same building. And it's just, this was the, the trial that happened after this death 
um, was was a, a media frenzy. It was one of the first uh, nationally televised um, uh, proceedings, and um, it it was uh, a horrific picture of domestic violence and um, and all of this was you know several friends of the Steinbergs said that, you know, Joel changed when he moved into that building. It was a real life shining playing out in Greenwich village. And I feel like, you know, Jan was kind of trying to alert people with this book in a way that she, you know, here's my experiences in this haunted space. And, um, you know, it got a nickname of the murder house. And, um, and I feel like Jan's experience. I just, I wish in some ways people could have taken that more seriously at the time that maybe we really need to do something about this house. I mean, I think if they just raised it to the ground, it might be, it, it needs to be like salted to the earth. I, we don't know any inciting incident as to what created this ongoing kind of negative energy that's perpetuated in that house. And then some people who are still living there, we have to be very careful when we take tours through there um, that, you know, we're, this is a residence. People are living there. There are families there. It's not fully occupied. It's never been fully occupied, which I find very interesting. There's always been blackened out windows in this, in this space. Um, but uh, so we try to be very respectful about that because hopefully none of them are sensitive and they're just blissfully unaware of any of the sort of toxic energy, but both Andrea and I have felt um, uh, a shortness of breath, um, uh, uh, oppressive air. I, I can't breathe out in front of the house. And I share that. I share my own weird synergies um, that have happened when I was reading Spindrift. Strange things were happening to me as I was reading Spindrift that were parallel to what Jan was experiencing, which was really uncomfortable. But um, I think it's just another way to explore a women's na woman's narrative because while the house is very, very famous for all of these ghost stories, a lot of the things that ghost tour guides will talk about are directly from Spindrift and, and Jan's accounts, but she doesn't always get the credit for saying, here's someone who literally chronicled, she was the chronicler of that house. And so we're trying to give her back a little bit of that, um, a little bit of that agency, um, even though it really took the life out of her. I have seen more and more tour guides lately in recent years, uh, crediting Jan Brian Bartel more than there used to be, um, which so it feels like step in the right direction. Well, it's a marvelous book, and it is a downright eerie book. Um, you know, to have read it after reading the chapter in your book about it, it was uh, quite the experience. I refer to it as my not so pleasant evening reading. <laughs> yeah, like it's a haunting book. Like it's yeah. just as you're reading it, you're like, this is so bizarre, um, and and you're just like, you can't put it down. It's a really strange book. I, I've never felt quite as unsettled, um, almost uncomfortably peering into someone's mind. It, it felt like an intimacy that I shouldn't be allowed. It was really mm -hmm. weird. Yeah, strange. Yeah. Book. You're kind of just reading her unraveling. Yep. Yes. And that's a really disturbing experience, but also I think a rather important one. Absolutely. And I'm, and I'm really grateful that, that her husband didn't stand in the way of it being published. We were talking about that before we started recording is that Fred deserves some credit for, you know, what is not always a flattering picture going out into the world, surviving as a testament we only know her name because of Spindrift, um, because, you know, yes, she was an actress, but 
she wasn't, uh, you know, a Tony Award winner. So the, the, you know, she was a working actress and she was also a writer um, of, of cute little pieces about dogs and, and clever, you know, little repartee and things like that. But this, what we know her for really is Spindrift, even though it's an out of print memoir. Um, it's, it has definitely taken on it, a life of its own in, in ghost lore for sure. And so at least no one stood in the way of that, even though all the transcribers fell ill when they were working from her notes, which I also think is absolutely harrowing in and of itself. I, I, I say in the chapter, I am I'm worried for my own health, which was, I, I wasn't having a great time when I wrote that chapter either. It was like, I was shaking a lot and I was having a hard time breathing while writing that. And even sometimes still talking about it. When I read that chapter aloud, I actually have, uh, I struggle for breath every single time. And I just warn my audience. I'm like, you're just going to have to go through this with me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, reading it is kind of like that. You are being forced through this harrowing experience. It's like the only thing that I've read that's really come close to it um, was the haunting of Hill House with just this place is evil. There's something which is, wrong. Which is funny because that that gets quoted a lot because the first my first encounter with 14 West 10th Street, I was walking by before I knew anything about it. And I had like a I wouldn't say I had a panic attack, but I had I was short of breath and I had a, an uneasiness and I just felt really, really, really wrong. And I and I looked at a ghost account of the city and I was like, oh, that that's where I was walking when I felt really ill in a weird way. And, and the Therese Lang and Schmidt's ghosts of New York um, opens her chapter about 14 West 10th with some houses are born bad, which is yeah. a quote from Hill house. And that's really at the end of the day, that's, that's the only thing people can think about this is that something, some bad energy was there from the beginning of this house. And it just never really has gotten a chance to dissipate. There's certain places in New York that also make me feel very queasy when I walk by them. And 14 West 10th Street is one. Um, City Hall Park is one. Um, Merchant's House makes me feel a flutter, not in a in bad way, but it's like there's a feeling I get in my tummy that's just like there's a it just feels like butterflies in my stomach. And um, sometimes I'll get a sense that like I'm being pushed. I'll get a sense that the air pressure suddenly becomes very heavy, like uh, as though I always say it's as though more like I'm moving through water than I am through air. There's that resistance, which I do feel in, in 14 West 10th Street. And oddly enough, I was walking through Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn, which is like a really nice neighborhood now. And it was around like it was near Court Street and Pacific Street is in that area a few blocks east of there. And I was like overwhelmed by that feeling. So that is next on my list of places to research because I was like, this is incredibly strong. Um, so yeah, there's just uh, definitely 14 West 10th is one of those few places that you're just like, uh, you're literally arrested. You, you just, you stop in your tracks and you're like, this is it. I, and I don't, again, consider myself a highly sensitive individual, but even I'm like, wow. Yeah. And a lot of people on the tours and Leanna, I know you can corroborate this too. A lot of people on the tours will be like, yeah, this is a nauseating feeling place. So I love the idea that to a certain extent, you know, ghosts are just the weight of history, you know, bearing yes. down upon you. Yes, absolutely. Um, there's this Edith Wharton quote. I always mangle it, but, you know, she talks about the accumulated weight of all those lives and deaths. And I, I do think that, and that's why I feel very strongly that place memory or residual haunting feels like a very valid concept to me. You know, it is that weight of history. A haunting is the weight of history. Um, and it just, again, these metaphors are all very neat. They all feel very like, yes, they feel very self-evident when you say them out loud. 
Um, but absolutely, the weight of history is, is a form of haunting for sure. Even if you're not feeling supernatural, even remotely, you're like, I feel it. I kind of feel it in the five points too. In Columbus Park, you kind of feel that weight of history. Mm-hmm. It's a nice absolutely. feeling. It yeah. is. It, and I encourage at the beginning of my tours, I say, you know, the, this tour is for skeptics and believers. Um, if you're here to see something, well, what, what I know I can guarantee you is that you're going to see historical architecture and you're <laughs> going to be able to, ch- to touch historical architecture. And that in and of itself is a character. And it has a quality about it that is more than just its bricks and mortar. It's more than just its details. It has this presence because it has been, it is, it has stood the test of time and it has a story to tell you whether or not you see a spirit in its looking out from a window or not is kind of immaterial. These things we are going to interact with and they are, they are full of, of a wealth of energy. Um, And, and, you know, even if people aren't energy sensitive, I encourage them to kind of like look at these different buildings and the different architecture. And they, they do have different qualities. They do have different feelings about them. And so I just sort of ask my audience to think about those different looks and vibes and, you know, um, uh, the different energies from one space to the next and how that changes and how, and how much, you know, New York is a patchwork of energies. And, and that's the case with a great deal of cities um uh that are, are are often like you know cobbled together over the course of history and still are trying to grapple with uh what needs to be updated and what needs to be you know torn down and what needs to be preserved and all of that all of those conflicts and we're just in the middle of it and i think even the most skeptical person would agree on a very basic level that a building does have a presence and people will talk about it or a place does have a presence they'll talk about it in the sense of when they go to an ancient ruin or a church regardless of their religious outlook they'll feel a, a palpable presence in that building a sense of how its use has imbued it with a certain energy or a battlefield or like they'll you know it is it is something that is felt and i think if somebody denied it vehemently, you would have to really wonder about that person because it's almost every single traveler, every single human being who's ever gone anywhere and stood in a place with any kind of historic import has been like, yes, it is a it is a feeling. It is an actual feeling. Um, and everyone's felt it. Everyone knows what you're talking about when you when you mention that feeling. And I think that your book does a really good job of imparting that. You know, just the importance of these different places, not just from a paranormal perspective, but from a historical perspective. I hope so. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. And well, and that's one of the things too. We we are passionate about historic preservation as well. And you know, ghost lore when a when a ha- when a museum, a house museum specifically has a haunting or it has a ghost associated with it, it's actually helpful for the house. They, they'll give little tours. They'll talk about that. It's a draw for the house, and. Whether or not some sometimes that gets, you know, elaborated on a little bit, as long as it's based in a non-harmful history, then that's, you can't, you can't blame a house for wanting to capitalize on its ghosts to keep its doors open. You know, these old mansions are really hard to maintain and it's very expensive, but then there's also ways in which it's been done irresponsibly. And Andrea dealt with that really well in her Sora Weed chapter um, about how that's, that narrative got changed and it's, it's deeply problematic. So these things have to be examined critically uh, when you start invoking the ghost lore. I was actually um, really curious about, you know, how people are feeling now, you know, in 2023, albeit not that far from the publication of your book, 
about the changes that have been made to the Lizzie Borden house. <laughs> yeah. I think I had to temper some of the paragraphs I wrote about that. Um, I do remember the editor asking me to remove some things at the request of our legal department. Yeah. It, <laughs> that just was uh, strange to me. Um, you know, some of the changes that have been being made, because although it is, you know, preserving this interesting bit of history, it also is walking the line. You know, I thought that the Winchester House was doing a much better job of respecting legacy. Yeah, I think uh, the concept of putting in an axe throwing uh, venue at Lizzie Borden is really gauche, uh, personally. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, so yeah, I, um, I, uh, but but they have they have an axe throwing venue at the Winchester House now, but but that doesn't like that I think one. Axe throwing is just a thing now. It's, it's just, just a thing now. But like as a society, we now yeah, Lucy Borden though. But, but like, that's another thing. Well, I well here here is where their direct parallel though is with the Winchester House. They also have a shooting range. I was going to say, do they have oh, a rifle God. range? Because that is the direct equivalent. Yeah. And that there is the that is the direct equivalent. And I also had strong words uh, <laughs> to say about that. And I also got asked by the legal department to take them out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the thing is, like, there's, you know, when Liana was alluding to the um, Sorrel Weed House, even in, in Savannah, like, there is this very fundamental ambivalence about what you're doing, because you cannot make any money even if it's very small amounts of money like us um you cannot make any amount of money off of the dead without some sort of moral fine line that you need to walk even if you run a cemetery and you offer like a movie night at the cemetery you have to be like okay you know let's think about how we're going to do this um it's just it's so 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 tricky because the previous ownership of the lizzie borden house did have kind of a cheeky sense of humor you know like leanne wilmer would she said funny things like when you're here we treat you like family like you know you you can have a sense of humor about things and you can have fun with things and fundamentally ghost stories are a form of entertainment so you know you can't get too dour about things but where is that line and and as an institution as a company as a person as a writer as a reader as a participant in this industry where do you personally draw your line and it's different for everybody and it's just a matter of finding you know people in places that draw their line more or less in the same area as you, I think, to feel comfortable. Um, yeah, it's it's really hard. That is like an ongoing question. And I think about it a lot. Like every day that I sit down to work and to do my job, I, I keep that in the back of my mind. Um, how do how do we how do we reconcile our many ambivalent feelings about what we do? I, you know, it's I've been increasingly thinking about it like it's very similar to comedy don't punch down. Yeah. I feel like it's this, you know, it, if you tackle, if, if you're going to be humorous or if you're going to shake foundations a little bit, you know, do it with an understanding of the power structure and calling into question, you know, who, who has been exploited historically, who is being exploited and also make sure that like, like in terms of if we are going to advocate for, you know, ethical ghost tours, then we're going to look at other people who are doing the work of telling difficult history, not, not whitewashing history. Um, if you're going to go down and you're going to go to uh, a Southern plantation, please uh, look up tours run by black people who are going to be engaging with the horrors um, because I, and anything else is erasure and, and, and not historically true. Um, you have to kind of grapple with 
the difficult history. And we have a lot of it in New York that we talk about. It's ugly stuff. And, you know, if the more that you can can seek out experiences that will give you a balanced perspective of here's what really happened. Here's how we as a modern society are dealing with that. No one's going to come away with answers or absolution for, for horrors. That's not the point of these things. The point is to learn about them. Yeah. And on that note, yeah. Do you guys have any new project that you're working on you know, that people can look forward to? Uh, how much are we allowed to say? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we, we're not. We're not really allowed to say uh, what is next because we also haven't. We haven't solidified our angle of what is next. But collectively, I think it's probably safe to say that everyone on our team wants to work together again. Excellent. How how that what form that takes um, will will is yet to be determined. Um, the the publishers being very kind about wanting to make sure that we're not going to do anything that is going to compete against our own title. Mm-hmm. So that's um, we're we are all trying to figure that out. And uh, in the meantime, um, there will be a t- a tour uh, season opening up for Birth of the Dead. Mm-hmm. So that Absolutely. will be imminent uh, in the next um, few months. So uh, thankfully, uh, I have a lot to occupy my mind while we work out the details. <laughs> while we work out the details, I, I I am also you know I I I've never left fiction, and and so I have I have some pieces coming out this year. Um, via Scribed, which is scribd.com, um, where I narrate uh, speculative fiction that I've written um, of various kinds. So I have a bunch of work uh, that's extant up there already, and I will be releasing more this year. And we're trying to place, I have a, a novel that I just adore that we're trying to find the right home for. I have a wonderful agent uh, who is hard at work um, trying to secure. Um, I have four different things out on proposal right now. So Oh, gosh. There's a lot going on, um, but I, and, and we'll, so we'll see remains to be seen. But in the meantime, we were just trying to still talk about this book because we were just recently um, nominated for a Stoker award. So for this book, and we're very excited about it. So um, now that we're a Stoker finalist, I feel like there's going to be a renewed interest in the book, which is great because there's been continuous interest since it came out in uh, end of September. And we're hoping to just kind of keep writing that because this this is a timeless book um, and we, and it's a real labor of love and it's um, a culmination of both of our life's work. It really is. And where can we find you guys online? Any, anywhere. I'm on just about every social media. It's just that I'm not on all of them very frequently, but I'm most often on Twitter, even with its um, ups and downs uh, at my first and middle name. So Leanna Renee. Um, I am also on Instagram at my full name. Um, I'm, I have a Facebook uh, author page. I just don't tend to go there much. Um, but, uh, off, my website has lots of, uh, free reads and features and information and a contact form, um, there, uh, if people are curious about things, you can check all of that out at my full name. So LeonaRenaHeber.com. Yeah. I'm usually on Instagram under the auspices of Burrows of the Dead sometimes tweet at macabre nyc um i have a personal twitter that i use sometimes but um instagram uh, burrows of the dead is where i do like most of my interacting and then also my personal website andreajanes.com and my work website burrows of the dead.com um and really this is so very quaint and old-fashioned but like my email address is on both of those websites and if you, <laughs> like write me a note i will write you back so 
Um, yeah, unless the note is creepy, and then I won't. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, I was like, we always have to have a caveat of like, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I you write like a normal person, I will write you back. Yeah, <laughs> right, excellent. Right. Yeah. I mean, and we're we're all we're all dealing with spooky stuff, so it can be as long as it's a normal message about spooky <laughs> content, that's fine. It's just don't be creepy at us. Yes, you can talk about creepy things, but don't talk creepy to us. Thank you. That's a good caveat to have. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. Oh, but thank you guys so much for your time. You can find print, ebook, or audio versions of A Haunted History of Invisible Women wherever books are sold. Maybe a perfect Christmas gift for a spooky someone in your life. You could also buy your friends and relations or yourself one of my books for your festive read, and you can find all of those in the Folklore Shop on our website at thefolklorepodcast.com as well as recordings of past lectures, conferences and presentations, folklore t-shirts and more. Everything you buy from the Folklore Shop helps us to keep making content for you. And if supporting us is your thing, then head over to patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast, where you can do that for just a pound a month, although other tiers are available. We're just about to start releasing a new audiobook part work over there for supporters, so it's a great time to sign up. Finally, if you've never done it before, please leave us a rating on your podcast platform of choice, which helps other people who haven't listened before to try our show with the confidence that it's well-liked. Unless, of course, you leave a bad rating. Please don't do that. Five stars is good. Hi, I'm Carly. And I'm Claire. And we are Lunar Tractors. We are interrupting your normal programming to announce... We have a new album uh, from our festive alter egos, Eula Tractors. It's called Solstice Weird, and uh, it's quite twisted and trippy. And it's out on the 12th, and you're going to hear a track from it right now. Bye.
Thanks for listening. See you next time.